0: Hello, hello. Welcome to my reinvented podcast, Taboo, where we talk about all the things people are afraid to talk about. If it makes you uncomfortable, I'm probably going to talk about it. Life is too short for ambiguity. So thank you for listening. And here we go. Hello, hello, and welcome to this week's episode of taboo the podcast where we talk about all the things that people don't want to talk about this week i'm very honored to have the privilege of having my blood sister amanda vasquez on the show we are talking about to diagnose or not to diagnose so before we get started on that topic i'll let her introduce herself and tell you a little bit more about who she is and what she does
1: oh 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 First of all, I'm super excited to be here. I am Amanda and I'm a psycho-spiritual coach. So I actually have a background in psychology and spirituality. I have a master's and I also had the opportunity to dabble in the world of marriage and family therapy for a full year in a master's program. I was actually very interested in pursuing licensure so that I would be able to work with children. But about a year into the program, I decided it was not for me and I withdrew. And so here I am fully immersed in the world of psycho-spirituality where I combine psychology, and I would definitely say I lean into Jungian psychology with ancestral wisdom. And I utilize these different methods to help people heal in mind, body, and spirit from a really holistic approach. These days, I'm diving really deep into womb healing, the wisdom of the womb, specifically working with women to help people move some pretty deep, dark, ancestral trauma (laughs) and really just flowing with that. and, And I'm loving every second of it. So I'm really happy to be here to talk about diagnosing. Do we diagnose or do we not? And you might be wondering, why is she even talking about this if she's not a licensed provider? But I think this conversation is so important to be had in these times where diagnosing is trending all over social media and there's a lot of pros and cons to it, but I'll let my sister take over from here before I get into that.
0: Yeah. So when we talk about to diagnose or not to diagnose, we're referring to exactly what Amanda just said, like the, Almost necessity that we feel to, and I'm speaking from the healthcare perspective. Sorry, I should have clarified that. When people come into an exam room, the first thing that we want to do is give them a diagnosis. You know, we listen to all of their symptoms, we do a physical exam, and then we're like, okay, I think that you have this. And, you know, if they're presenting with a bunch of symptoms and we're not quite sure if they all correspond together, we send them to a specialist, and then that specialist will do the same thing gathering information, listening to their history, listening to their symptoms, looking at the patient and the way they present today. And then what do we do? We give them a diagnosis. And then if these diagnoses are things that are related to mental health or personality traits, these are things that this patient will now carry on with them for the rest of their life. And so today we really want to talk about the pros and cons of doing this, if this is really necessary and just kind of explore the realms of critical thinking that are possible when looking really introspectively at this topic.
1: Yes. So I'm super excited to talk all about this. And what really sparked this in me is being on Instagram and sometimes on TikTok, even though I'm not Gen Z, I do dabble from time to time and seeing how there's trending diagnoses out there. And a few of them are adult ADHD, neurodivergence, and bipolar disorder is definitely one of them. And I think those are the top three. I think that really stand out to me when I'm on the internet. Oh, and the word narcissist being thrown around left and right. So for me, when I'm on Instagram and I'm looking at people who are forming communities around this diagnosis that they're identifying with, I see some positives to it. I see the fact that they're finding community, they're breaking down barriers of stigma around the diagnosis, which is really, really good. And I think it's super important that we do this because there is so much shame around receiving a diagnosis. And for a lot of people receiving a diagnosis can actually be a liberating moment for them, especially if they've been experiencing a lot of mental health issues over an extended period of time. And they receive this diagnosis. They experience what is referred to as naming it to tame it. They now know what it is, this, this big heavy monster that's been ruling their world for so long. And then the diagnosis is the gateway to allowing them to move forward, to treat their diagnosis, to to, to treat the symptoms that they're experiencing, actually, that the diagnosis is helping them make sense of and make light of. And I could see how for a lot of people, that could be a turning point in their life, right? And then at the same time, what concerns me when I go on social media is seeing how perhaps somebody comes out with the fact that they've received a diagnosis from a mental health provider, and then they write a list of all the symptoms or qualities or characteristics that they were experiencing or identify with that has led to them receiving this diagnosis, and then other people reading that list, and then self-diagnosing themselves, and It's just really concerning because one, I'm so curious as to what it is that leads people to even feel the need to find a diagnosis for themselves when they're experiencing maybe a a general cluster of quote unquote symptoms that might actually be related to the systems in place versus related to their neurology. And I think that's something that I want to call into question and I'll pause right there if you have anything you want to reflect on.
0: Well, no, I mean, just listening to what you're saying, you know, I always kind of parallel that to my work in healthcare. And there's this one syndrome, it's called chronic fatigue syndrome. And it's basically anybody who feels fatigued most of the time. And I think about how many people come in and that, that's their complaint, like how many patients I've seen. And they're just like, I'm always tired. I think it's anemia. I think I have low blood sugar. Maybe I have low blood pressure. And then, you know, we do the million dollar workup. Everything is normal. And then you start really digging. Okay, how much sleep are you getting? Four hours. How many hours are you working a day? 16 hours. How much time are you taking for yourself to just be at, be at peace with yourself? Watch TV, sit, read a book, do something relaxing. None. And then you wonder like, okay, is this actually a diagnosis that needs to be assigned to this patient? Or is it just that they're living a life that is leading them to be burnt out and exhausted and they're running on literal fumes. So that fits in perfectly with what you were just saying.
1: Right. And and that's what I mean by the systemic factors, right? And what systems are in place that's causing these people to experience chronic fatigue, right? Is it the insane amount of hours they're working that week so that they can keep up with all their bills and the lifestyles that they're leading? Like, what is it that's really going on here? And especially with the adult ADHD diagnosis that I am seeing just rampant on the internet, that one is really triggering when I look at that from the psycho-spiritual perspective, because I think everything is pulling for your attention, everything is pulling for your attention. All of these apps that we are on have created an attention span of, I think like five seconds or less, because I'm in this world of marketing through the digital space. And I've been told you have two seconds to get someone's attention. It wasn't like this before we had much longer attention spans, but the thing is, is that this digital world is leading our attention span to get shorter and shorter and shorter. The functions that we are utilizing on these platforms the swiping the scrolling the liking that is all designed to keep us in this mode of being hooked scrolling on these apps they want us to stay on the app so we're constantly having all of this information these shots fired into our brain over and over and over and over again and everything is pulling for our attention in this way on our phones the way the colors are set up with the apps it's actually wild. It's like pretty insane. So it makes sense to me that of course, as a society, our attention span is getting shorter. And then you throw in the fact that we're being taught to be Really hyper productive individuals whose self worth self-worth is completely connected to how much we produce in a day. This concept of being really good at multitasking, we're not being taught how to be anchored and grounded into the present moment, which is why you also see the rise of mindfulness and yoga and all these other spiritual practices coming into play as a band aid for a really deeply rooted systemic issue. So then all these tweens are out here saying that they have adult ADHD. And it's like, do you have adult ADHD or is your neurology being manipulated? Are the wires in your brain fusing out because everything is stealing your attention and that's how they want it to be. But then now you go and you seek out this diagnosis and you get prescribed, right? So you can manage your, your quote unquote problem. What's wrong with you. And what does that do? That keeps big pharma as expansive as ever. So really it's not to hate on anybody because there are people who actually really do have ADHD. It's to put into question the realities of what's really going on here and whether a diagnosis is actually fitting for you or not, or if you're just buying into something that you think there's something wrong with you, but it's, it's really a systemic issue that's at play.
0: A hundred percent. And when you were speaking about how technology is designed to keep us tapped into our phones and connected 24-7, it made me think of that Netflix documentary, The Social Dilemma. Mm -hmm. where you had people who were working for Google and Facebook and all these companies explaining how the algorithm is designed to lure people in and keep you in that like bottomless black hole where you tell yourself, okay, I'm going to be on this for five minutes. And before you know it, you spent two hours scrolling. So really just looking at what are the external factors that are influencing your decisions and how is this affecting your ability to focus, your ability to sleep, your ability to exercise or the time that you were going to take to exercise that now you spent on social media. So, really looking at the whole picture instead of just like a list of vague and ambiguous symptoms like fatigue, trouble sleeping, you know, grogginess in the morning. Cause most of us suffer from these at some point.
1: And I think it's normal to have these moments where we're not feeling 100% all the time, right? And you and I talk about this in, in the Womb Wisdom introductory class that we did, especially as females, we're not at 100% all the time and we're not designed to be at 100% all the time. There's literally like a 48 hour window in the month where our energy levels are at 100%. So it's taking all of this into consideration and then realizing that we think there's something wrong with us because we can't keep up with a system that is milking every aspect of our energy so that we can keep producing and filling the pockets of the big wigs with money. And it's just like, it's mind blowing. It's mind blowing because it's, it's painful. I think it's painful to see generations of people buying in to these diagnoses and falling into this trap. Absolutely.
0: And I mean, from my own personal experience, I remember this past year, I spent like a whole year contemplating whether or not I wanted to quit my job because I was just so burnt out. I was exhausted. My days off after like a 12 or 16 hour shift, I was literally just like sleeping or lying in bed, recovering. I was like, I'm too tired to go to the gym. And I remember towards the end, before I finally took the leap, I was like, wow, I think I have really bad depression. And then I quit my job and all my depression went away. It wasn't that I was depressed. I mean, yes, I was depressed, but I was depressed because my job was sucking my soul because I was giving all of my energy, time and creativity into a job that didn't even love me back. So, you know, when you really look at this, like this hyperproductivity that you're saying in an average healthcare day, I was seeing anywhere from 70 to hundred patients, like Do you know what that is to have an energetic encounter and hear 70 to 100 people's problems, why they're there, what symptoms they're having, and then be responsible for coming up with an assessment and, oh, I think that you have this because of this, this, and this, and this is what we're going to use to treat it. Because unfortunately, the reality of medicine is most people come in and they're looking for a solution. And most people don't want a solution like that little meme of the doctor that says, 20 minutes of sunlight, daily exercise, sleep eight hours, drink a lot of water. They want a magic pill. And so that goes exactly into what you're saying of like feeding the system of big pharma. So really when we can sit down and have these deep and sometimes painful conversations of what is actually going on with my body? What is actually going on with my mind? And how can I actually tune in and be more in sync with what my body's asking me for. And I just wanna clarify, I'm not saying quit your job. This was just my unique situation. And some people I've met, they love their job. Like I meet so many patients who, they genuinely love what they do and they work a lot, but they're like, you know, I love what I do. So it doesn't feel like work, which alludes to that saying that um, people are always talking about where do what you love and you'll never have to work a day in your life. Unfortunately, I have not experienced that, you know, medicine is a a definitely a shadow career, but you know it it really teaches you to be looking at the bigger picture and looking at, is this benefiting me more than it's harming me, because if the answer is the opposite, then you may want to look into other alternatives.
1: Yeah, and I think that goes hand in hand with seeking a diagnosis or receiving a diagnosis, right? Like receiving that diagnosis, is it going to benefit you in the long term? And for some people, initially it does, right? Because they get that sense of peace, name it to tame it. And then I've heard stories and I've even worked with clients who they over identify with the diagnosis and they lose themselves in the diagnosis, and then it rules their life and it creates a lot of limitations for them because now the diagnosis is getting in the way of doing a lot of things or pursuing different dreams or things that they're interested in because according to that diagnosis that they've received they can't do xyz and these people that I've that I've met when they detached themselves from the diagnosis and just used it maybe as a guiding light from time to time in different moments of their life they realize that they got lost in the diagnosis and that they actually can do all the things that they want to do. It was just this attachment to this identity that was holding them back. It was almost like an, an excuse for them. And, you know, hearing that was just an affirmation and a confirmation of what I was feeling and, and really, challenged by. When I was in the marriage and family therapy program, I was sitting there in a diagnosis class. And even though she was very much a critical thinker, the professor who was leading it, there was just this visceral feeling in my body that it just, it it didn't come naturally to me to be a part of a system that utilized diagnosis in the way that that, that we do here in the United States. And something else that came to mind when I was sitting in that class was how The DSM, which is the the manual that psychiatrists and mental health providers utilize to give a diagnosis, is coming from a very colonial perspective. It's coming from a very Western perspective. And that's problematic because it's not taking into account the cultural factors that come into play when assessing a person's state of being. And it's really just looking at the mental component of a person's experience. And when giving a diagnosis, according to what's going on in a person's head, we're not even actually looking at the person's brain. We're not looking at the person's brain. And I was taught this when I was in school that in the world of psychotherapy, we're the only people who are part of a medical field that do not have access to looking at the organ that we are treating. Whereas medical providers actually do x-rays, right? You guys can do your ultrasounds and you have the tools available to you to confirm whether your diagnosis is on point with what's going on in the person's body. And yet here we are throwing out diagnoses to people without even seeing what's going on in their brain. So it's really just a person's hypothesis, which makes this diagnosis extremely subjective. So that visceral response I was feeling in my body was because it was not In alignment with my personal integrity system of knowing that I could potentially hand off a diagnosis to somebody, have them walk away with that, and then have it define the rest of their life. And for a lot of people, the diagnosis comes with what? Medication. So that was just very, very, very challenging for me, and I could not buy into it.
0: Yeah. And I think, you know, going back to like primary care, for example, I thought of how many patients I told they were diabetic, and it was like the first time they were hearing that diagnosis. And, you know, it's also, this happens with like diagnoses like cancer and, you know, diagnoses that have like this really negative or like permanent connotation to them. After you tell people like, you know, I'm really sorry, but, you know, based on the imaging or whatever, it looks like you have cancer. That's it. They've completely stopped listening to everything else because their body's just in like this state of shock. And they're just processing like, oh my God, I have cancer. You know, how is this happening to me? And so they've already stopped listening to everything you're saying, but if you can somehow explain this in a way where you're really educating the patient that all of these diagnoses don't have to be permanent. You know, like going back to the diabetes, which is what I was gonna start with. When I would tell somebody they had diabetes, I was like, look, I'm gonna have to put you on a bunch of pills. Just like you said, unfortunately, everything comes with pharmacology. We put them on all these pills, but I was like, listen, if you meet with the nutritionist, if we set you up with the social worker and you talk to her and we figure out what are your limiting factors, you know, what are the things that are stopping you from getting to the gym, from getting to the grocery store, from cooking your meals? Is it time? Is it money? Is it everything? Is it your job? This is reversible. We can put in the work together and this does not have to be something that you're carrying with you for life. And so I think that that's such an important point. You know, another diagnosis that comes to mind is grief reaction, which, you know, in the "Quote unquote diagnostic manual, we, you know, the supreme gods of medicine have decided that six months is the adequate time for somebody to grieve. Anything longer than six months now, we're suddenly concerned, like, why hasn't this person healed yet? And why are they still sad? And then like, you talk to this patient and they're like, well, yeah, I lost both of my parents in a car accident and I'm only 16. And now I'm in charge of my two other siblings. And I'm like, well, shit, yeah, it's going to take you more than six months for you to recover from this. I'm expecting you to be sad about this for quite some time. And, you know, you may never quote unquote heal from it. You're always going to have these scars with you, but how you choose to move through your life and navigate with this activity or event that's happened to you is going to determine, you know, what you make of your life. And so these conversations are so important to have with patients because, who am I to say six months is all the time that somebody gets to grieve for a loved one, for a pet, for a child, for anything. You know, it's just an arbitrary number, just like medication dosing, take it for seven days. Why not eight? Why not nine? Like we just create these numbers and it's like a system response. It's an algorithm, but each patient has to be looked at individually.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. And the grief thing blows my mind because from my knowing right we grieve our whole lives it's it's so many waves grief comes in waves for people and we don't get to decide for somebody else when they're done grieving and I would imagine and you can correct me if I'm wrong that that six month marker is to help people establish whether or not they're ready to go back to work to fuel the systems am I wrong I don't think it's necessarily for them to go
0: back to work. It's more just uh, like you were saying a a diagnosis Mm -hmm. and it's like, you know, going back to the whole point of this podcast, what is the purpose of that diagnosis? Like Mm -hmm. that person obviously knows they're grieving. They've obviously just lost somebody near and dear to them, or they've had something, you know, traumatic happen to them. So well you know I guess we're putting the diagnosis down maybe for their job or you know if they're having issues financially things like that you have to present documentation for these things but it must feel really uncomfortable for a patient when they come in at month six and a half and they tell me that they're still sad and I'm like well, the grief reaction code here says you can only be sad for six months. So let's see what else we can do here for you. You know, like we have to be realistic and you have to think critically and you have to really take the whole person into account that's sitting in front of you and reassess them constantly because these things are always changing, which is why permanent diagnoses, I have such a hard time with them.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And I appreciate that feedback. So you know i think something else that i i want to touch on is that cultural component of how the diagnosis that we have are directly influenced by social cultural and political factors that are prevalent or present in a society and there's no separation between a social cultural value system that exists in society and the kinds of diagnosis that we're creating and the cluster of sy- sy- symptoms that we are associating with a diagnosis. That's so important to take that into account. And I think an example of this, a good example of this, is dissociative identity disorder, right? Which is typically a byproduct of somebody experiencing a deeply traumatic event. And from the, and this is a mystery still in the the Western world, they just call it DID and then they do their best to work with it. And the way that they treat it is dependent upon whether the person experiencing DID wants to navigate their DID or eliminate their DID. So they actually will give people that opportunity to decide if it's a good provider. So it sounds pretty wild, but you'll have a person who might want to keep all these different personalities and personas that have emerged within them. And they're okay with going back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And there's even people who have like 18 different kinds of people who will appear within themselves and it's 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 a pretty fascinating thing to observe and i'm sure deeply disorienting for the person experiencing it however from a shamanic perspective did is viewed as the person's soul having fragmented so intensely from undergoing a traumatic experience and Typically, those people will experience comas or they'll have experienced sexual abuse. So it's seen as the spirit wanting to leave the body because the pain that was experienced was so intense that they no longer want to be here in this physical plane on earth anymore. And what that desire for the soul to leave the body does is it creates a susceptibility or an openness within that person's physical body to be consumed and possessed by other spirits. And if you watch somebody with DID, from my perspective, from a psycho spiritual perspective that takes into account spirits, it takes into account a very ancient way of viewing the world. It looks like that person is freaking being possessed by different people. Different spirits are taking over that person's body. And it's really intense to watch. So these are things to take into account. What's viewed as a disorder in this country is actually a spiritual experience that can be repaired potentially by somebody who has experience with going into shamanic states, typically trans states, and helping retrieve that person's soul so that those other spirits that have possessed the body can be released and that person's soul can re-enter the physical body. And when I hear that, I'm like, shit, that makes sense <laughs> that makes sense right and of course this is open to interpretation but do you see the difference between diagnosing and viewing it as a psycho spiritual experience
0: yeah absolutely you know and that resonates with a lot of the mental health diagnoses that we see and a lot of syndromes that we see and um i'll let you guys in on a secret whenever you see something with the word syndrome in it it basically means that the medical world has no idea what it is or how to treat it, and so it's a cluster of symptoms. They're going back to what we said earlier. Usually very vague, like fatigue. My body hurts. I have headaches often, and you know those fit most of us on a lot of different days of our lives because those symptoms are very vague symptoms. They're part of the human experience. You know, did you drink a lot of water? Did you drink ten cups of coffee? Like, did you sleep? Did you eat? Like, so many factors can determine whether or not somebody has these symptoms, and when you call it a syndrome. That basically is just exploiting the fact that all these symptoms, we're noticing a pattern. There's all these patients with the same cluster of symptoms and we'll name it something. So like my favorite example of this is fibromyalgia. And I bring this up because this is exactly what you're talking about. From a medical perspective, we have already noticed a trend that the majority of people who are given a diagnosis of fibromyalgia, once you start digging and actually taking a thorough patient history, Most, if not every single one of the patients that I have personally seen and the ones that I've read about, they all have some sort of underlying anxiety, depression, trauma, something that has created this physiologic manifestation of pain at specific points in their body, which is exactly what you were just saying, how these are physical manifestations that our body is showing us that are really just traumas our body is holding onto and you know, this, there's this amazing book that I've actually seen trending all over social media. And for good reason, it's called The Body Keeps the Score. And it's, it talks about exactly this and it's written by a medical doctor. And he talks about how all the patients that he's seen have all of these symptoms and they store things in different parts of the body. So just like you were saying, lots of rape victims, they dissociate when things are happening to them. And these parts of their psyche that my, uh, Amanda referred to as fragmented, they're stored somewhere else. And so when you enter these trance states, these um the
1: rapid eye desensitization. EMDR. Yes. Yeah. EMDR. So can
0: you explain? Can you talk about that? I think that one's so interesting.
1: EMDR is accessing a person's memories by simulating movement in the brain and they'll utilize a pen, for example, and they'll put it in front of the person's eyes and they'll start moving that pen back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. What's that's what that's doing is helping the person process memories that they've typically suppressed. Cause when a person experiences trauma, what happens is they typically do not remember the event in its entirety. They will have flashbacks of that traumatic event. So when they go into something like EMDR, they're able to recall all these different moments that have become fragmented in their memory. And eventually they'll put that puzzle piece together to have a full picture of that traumatic event. And for some people it's beneficial because they're no longer experiencing that same level of dissociation or the same level of flashbacks or haunting dreams because they have a full picture of what happened to them. And then they're able to fully process the trauma, maybe through somatic work and other kinds of integrative modalities.
0: Absolutely. And so for those of you who don't know, EMDR is eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. Mm -hmm. And it's exactly what Amanda said. The TLDR version is it basically allows people to tap into those layers of their subconscious or the layers that they're not willing to go into normally and put together the trauma, the event, whatever that is, and take those uh, fragmented pieces and make them whole again. So they're able to um, talk about the entire event that happened to them when before they couldn't recall it, it was a blur or they just had like moving images. So it's, it's super fascinating. And I think in the next few years or the next couple decades, depending on how fast we keep progressing, we'll really start to see these modalities, these psychosomatic modalities, emotional release therapy, tapping all of these things at the forefront of our treatment options instead of the antidepressants, the mania drugs, and all of these other pharmaceuticals that we're using that have some data to support that they help, but they're not healing people. They're just numbing symptoms.
1: Right. And, and I do want to, you know, really touch on the fact that I I do know people who have received the diagnosis, for example, bipolar, right? And the first thing that I want to bring is people's awareness is to please stop throwing around that word. Like it's a buzzword, like, oh, the weather's bipolar. That person's so bipolar just because today they're happy and tomorrow they were sad. That's not how bipolar works. Bipolar is usually stints, right? Of depressive episodes. And then manic episodes typically and there's different forms of bipolar too so keeping that in mind but it's not like an instant switch back and forth back and forth they're usually going through an extended period of depression an extended period of mania so keeping that in mind so that when it's cloudy one minute and sunny the next (laughs) it's not that the weather's bipolar (laughs) Um, that's not how bipolar works And there are people who I know that have received diagnosis of bipolar and what do they all have in common? Deeply traumatic childhood experiences or just a traumatic event in general. So do they actually have a manifestation of that trauma presenting in the form of bipolar? For me, bipolar is one of those that I would say yes, but that the underlying causes of it need to be ignored and that it just needs to be treated with a pill. No, their trauma needs to be addressed and from what I've seen, it can impact the way that they experience their bipolar disorder. So that's really important to know. And I recognize that for a lot of people with bipolar disorder to show up in this modern world, they have to be medicated because this world is so demanding of them that they don't have that opportunity to sit back and lean into those depressive episodes or those manic episodes. They don't, they have to show up and go to work. So the the medication is what helps them keep on moving and keep on showing up even when their their brain is not in the place to to be in the public spaces that that they need to go into. And I also wanna talk about how bipolar disorder is a pretty interesting disorder because they can actually tap into really creative states. And that's something that's not really talked about is how a lot of creative people, a lot of artists were re- did receive the, the diagnosis of bipolar. And that actually even has me questioned in general, like the, the concept of being bipolar too, right? Like there's just so many different ways of viewing these disorders, these diagnoses, And again, it's all going to be influenced by the culture that you're a part of the systems in place and the value systems of those cultures and the society that you're in. So just, Oh, that's all I'm here for is really to stretch this mentality around diagnosing around receiving a diagnosis pros and cons, and just being a critical thinker, especially if you're out here on social media and you see a cluster of symptoms that somebody writes, like, please, please, please be a critical thinker and don't just grab that diagnosis and say that you have it. And if you feel like it's really worth pursuing and you need to go to a mental health provider, really vet that mental health provider, really, really, really vet them because I'll give you this personal insight. I was in a practicum for my marriage and family therapy program. I took simply one class on diagnosing. It was literally scratching the surface. And that, so this was just one class that I took. And right away I was thrown into working one-on-one with clients at a private practice. And I was required to Put a diagnosis for every single person that came through that door, whether they were seeking a diagnosis or not. And even though I was an intern, so the practice wasn't allowed to utilize insurance for the patients that were seeing me. I still had to put a diagnosis on that person's record. Me, little old me, not licensed, had only been in two semesters of school, taken one class on diagnosing, right? I was allowed to put that diagnosis, okay? So just keep that in mind when you're receiving a diagnosis, when you're seeking a diagnosis, go to somebody who's also a critical thinker, right? Just because people are diagnosing doesn't mean they're not critical thinkers. That professor I had was very, very, very incredible when it came to challenging our perceptions and, and, and always having us understand that diagnosing is a subjective experience and it's, it's a subjective process. So I think that's really all I want to share about this really controversial topic. And I'm so glad that we got to have this conversation.
0: Thanks. And I'll just piggyback off of that last part that you said um, diagnosing is so subjective. I tell this to patients all the time. You can have one patient see 10 different providers and we will all give you a different diagnosis. And our manuals that we use, the ICD-10 codes and all of those things that we use to diagnose, they have so many different options. It's like insect bite, non-venomous, insect bite, venomous, insect bite of multiple sites, insect bite of single site. So that's how vague these diagnoses are. And that's how quickly they can change and fluctuate. So I think for me, the key points that we want to drive home is if you have a diagnosis, don't try to attach yourself to it and let it control your life. That diagnosis does not define you. That diagnosis is something that was currently told to you. And I don't believe that any diagnosis is truly permanent unless you've had like a leg amputation or something like that, because those things are difficult. And even then, like you can get a prosthetic leg. So really not defining yourself by your diagnosis, but more using that knowledge and doing shit tons of research on your own to see what else is out there for you besides whatever pills have been given to you. And really looking at the connection between your body, your symptoms, and your mind. Because 95% of the time, they're all connected and it may be higher. I don't know. That's a random number I made up, but I feel like those symptoms are all related. Like the more work I've done in yoga, in Ayurveda, now in herbalism and in medical school, like these things are all interconnected and they're all always at play together. So when you have true synchronicity of what's going on in your mind and in your body, you will be much more aware of why things are happening to you.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely, and and just taking into account the the spiritual component of this human existence, this very mystical component that we've rejected in the Western world, that we've labeled as being part of the occult, as being something from the dark side, right? It's actually really helpful to become attuned to other perspectives, cultural ways of seeing the world, different lenses to see the world through, because it allows us to open our mind two different ways of living and breathing in the world. And when we reject the spiritual components of human existence, we're doing a disservice to ourselves and to our mind, to our body, to our spirit and, and to humanity, right. As, as providers, as practitioners, as people in the world. So just taking all of this into account the next time you come here, your, find yourself at a crossroads with, with diagnosing.
0: Well, thank you so much for coming on and chatting with me about diagnosing. I love that we can add in the psychospiritual perspective and the medical perspective. I think the fusion of all three is so badass. Um, if people want to know more about you or they're interested in working with you, where can they reach you?
1: Yes. Honestly, Instagram is just the place to find me. It's the psychospiritual coach on Instagram. My website is the psychospiritualcoach.com currently doing one-on-one womb work, one-off sessions, and six-week containers as well. And you and I have the upcoming program, the three-month program, the Moon Temple, which is to connect women to the womb space from the medical perspective. Well, not medical, but from the, yeah, from the, from the medical perspective, from the psycho-spiritual perspective. And We also have some retreats coming up. The ayahuasca retreat with Maestra Elisa is happening April 8th to the 16th in Pucallpa, Peru. I'll be doing the facilitation work to integrate people's experiences with working with the medicine. And that is all I have for you right now, which is actually a lot. (laughs) So I'm excited and grateful. Thank you so much for having me.
0: Thank you so much for your time, for your energy, and thank you everybody for listening. Stay tuned for next week's episode of Taboo.